All right. How are you, Jolyn? I'm exquisite. How are you doing? I'm good because we're live. <laughs> Did I get your ears? <laughs> you know what? New new earbuds, so it doesn't really hit me as much, and I prepare. It's called adaptive. Right. So I'm gonna take it to the next octave next time. Don't do that. Anyways, <laughs> what's good, everybody? I am Mark Monroe, accompanied by my wonderful co-host, co producer, co-creator, good friend, and all things galactic. Rocking the hat, I see. You know, we out here. Give it up for the wonderful. It's Julian GC in the place to be. What does it cousins? Mark, how are you? Did I already ask you? Yeah, you know, yeah, your boy, you know, he's good. He's doing all right out here. You know, oh, things are going good. through a process of edits and everything else. Mm -hmm. A new episode may be dropping soon. So a two-part series oh yeah. yeah i got you know there's a two-part there's a two-part coming uh as well for watch rituals you know the season finale it's not yet though y'all so we still have a couple more episodes but super excited about that indeed indeed well what's up y'all uh thank you all for joining us tonight this is going to be a wonderful amazing show uh we get to talk about all things etfs some of the things that you may have you know, just maybe wanted to know in the back of your mind. So we'll get into that in a little bit, but let's get out some of the things in order. It, like, for example, why haven't you subscribed yet? Like, go ahead and subscribe. And also send this out to like five friends, like five friends that you know that have been asking you how to get started. How should I pick things? You know, all these great investment questions. Yeah, go ahead and send it to those five people. And on top of that, Go ahead and smash that like button because we would be totally appreciative. And if you want to be like Haitian Pete was first in the chat. Hey, Haitian Pete. <laughs> if you want to be like Haitian Pete, go ahead and hit that bell so that way you can be a part of the notification squad, a.k.a. the Cool Kids Club. All right. So, Jolyn, you know, yes. this market, what is going on? <laughs> well, you know, there's a war. So <laughs> there's red you know, everywhere. So the Dow was negative uh, 597.65 points, um, which currently brings us to a level of, wow, we're at 33,294.95. Uh, S&P 500 was negative 67.68 points. We're now holding levels at 4,306.26. The NASDAQ was a negative 218.94 points which uh, leads us uh, to levels at 13,532.46. The VIX is heating up. The VIX is at 33.32. Um, that's up from yesterday. And the 10-year um, is at 1.755 uh, percentage. So it came down a little bit um, from Tuesday, and then it went back up. So we're... It's creeping back up, y'all. It's getting spicy uh, out now. here. <laughs> for now. Then heading on over to sector performance. Oh my gosh, Mark, I forgot to tell you. What's up? But I think you already knew. We have 11 sectors. We track the top three and the bottom three so we can see what that rotation is looking like. Holding it down, the only one that was positive, can you guess, it was energy. Energy was up. Um, and then the other top two um, would be real estate and health, but they were both negative. And then for the bottom feeders, we have technology, materials, and financial, all negative, all in the red. Heading over to our pick performance, as you know, you can find the Come Up Series picks on our Instagram page at that Come Up Series. Uh, subject to change, just hold on. We'll it's March now, so Coming you know soon. what we're waiting for. It's it's getting it's getting hot. It, we'll see what makes the cut what actually gets cut and what stays and what's new. So look forward to that. But we have Target after reporting uh, great earnings, great forecast. Um, they were up at 9.84% point. Uh, we have Schrodinger at 3.91% to the upside in Zscaler. Cybersecurity, it's no wonder. Um, I don't know if you've had increased uh, notifications from Google about password uh, compromises. Yeah, I've had a lot. So um. I've been getting those since last year. So either either my passwords must be way too weak or 
But Yo, you know, we, we went through that whole process of changing. By the way, shout mm-hmm. outs to Authly. Uh, if you need a two uh, factor authentication platform, pretty dope. Okay, um, someone drop that in the chat, please. We have Zscaler at 3.63 percentage points to the upside. Now for the bottom feeders, we have AMD um, at negative 7.71% points. Um, C Limited was negative 13.12 percentage points. And Elucid was the last on the list at negative 13.771 points. Now, I do have to say, because we are talking about and can you see it? ETFs today, I do want to shout out um, the stock parents and my stock bay. So XLK was negative uh, 2.00 points today. XLY was negative um, 1.52 percentage points. And SMH was negative 3.15 percentage points. So um, I usually do not call these ones out. Um, they're on my list, obviously, but I usually don't call them out, but I had to today because we're going to be talking about all things ETF today. Super excited. And before we get there, Mark, you know, yesterday was the last day of black history for some, but over here, black history keeps going. So let's see what Brian Clyette, our, um, historian has prepared for us today. We ready. We're ready. All right. Well, let me take a sip. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Today, we're going to be talking about James Baldwin. James Baldwin was one of the leading voices of the civil rights movement. The author was born in 1924 in Harlem, New York, right in the midst of the Harlem Renaissance that gave birth to the still influential foundation of Black arts and culture. His hometown and birth became prophetic, and Baldwin became one of the most successful and revered Black authors of all time. It was around that time that Baldwin began to grapple with his sexuality and realized he was gay. Burdened by the continuing racial discrimination and the limitations of sexuality on black men, Baldwin took a writing fellowship in Paris. It was there that his writing blossomed with several of his work exploring racial and social themes as well as sexuality. Baldwin moved to France and lived his final years in St. Paul de Vence and his influence on American culture as well as international literature is still felt today. Baldwin died in 1987, leaving an impressive legacy and a wealth of wisdom behind. Here are some of Baldwin's influential quotes on everything from life and love to racism and justice. Here's his quote. Um, On Black Americans, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. This is one of Baldwin's um, I would say one of his most famous yeah. quotes. Um, and you can go back and look at several of his interviews. Um, the words that came out of his mouth, the way that he um, like shared was really powerful. Yep. Just how he even put a sentence together. So um, yeah, shout out to all of the uh, black artists who continue to be inspired by James Baldwin. Dope, dope, dope. All right. Are you ready, Jolene? Yes, I'm ready. But I do need to put something on the record, Mark. Okay. The iPad, RIP for this episode because it's, yeah, the iCloud, remember I told you I was trying to fix it? It just deleted all of my notes for today. Um, So, and I don't have, I don't carry pens and pencils. So I do have this, um, like art pencil set. Should I should I type I have, something up? You know what? You know what? How about this? For once and once in a lifetime shot. If you use an iPad, go ahead and take notes for Jolyn today. And if you bring forth some of the best notes, you know what? I'll even host you for a session. Like just host you for a knowledge session. So the best okay. let the best notes win. Yes, and I appreciate um color coding, graphics, um, a table of contents. Don't play with the notes, y'all. <laughs> Appreciate you. Oh my gosh. All right. All right. Take- he hails from the great city of Philadelphia. Brotherly love. <laughs> Though, you know, I got to do it. I had to switch it up. I had to switch it up. Uh- you know I had to do it. <laughs> 
But uh, coming to the stage, y'all, all the way from the wonderful offices and research labs of Bloomberg, he is known as like probably the ETF whisperer or maybe even write some of the, you know, the knowledge and wisdom of ETFs. Give it up for none other than Mr. Eric Balchunas of Bloomberg. Hey, come up to the stage. Uh, hey! <laughs> Minus the Patriots hat, it was great. <laughs> I had to. Uh, listen, I had oh, to. By the way, down the street where I live, they made a after we beat the Patriots, they made a huge mur mural of this eagle with big nasty claws, and it had Tom Brady in its claws, and it was like going to eat Tom Brady, and somebody like made a huge mural of that. So <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was. You should have seen the the city when they won. I lived down the street from Broad Street, and it was like an explosion of joy and happiness and. Uh, Philly fanness. Anyway, so, but Patriots obviously are, you know, they're like the, one of the greatest teams ever. Well, now that we got that out of the way, we, we switched. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you, you were trying to trigger me, and, and you did. <laughs> I had to throw you a little bit off guard. But, uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm ready to geek out. So, are you ready to geek out a little bit? Yeah, let's well, do it. But first things first, you know, for the folks in whom we said don't know you, for the folks that haven't done their research on you, tell the tell the world a little bit about yourself. Um, so yeah, I live in Philly. Um, moved around a lot as a kid though, uh, which we were talking earlier about. Uh, lived in Nashville. One of your producers lived there. Um, and for the last twenty years, I've been working at Bloomberg. I started in PR. Um, actually, got to work with Mike Bloomberg a little bit. That was really cool. And then I went to data because I wanted to take a, you know, it was a New York PR and I went to data, which is a really weird move. Um, one's a talking job and one's like to just sit there and like analyze data job. And it was hard to get used to, but I, I did that for 13 years. And then I started to write about the data and talk about the data and ultimately got recruited by our research group. Um, and research in, in a way is sort of a combination of you know, journalism, data, and you have to sell your own research. So you have to yeah. do PR for yourself these days. And so now I'm leading a team of, of six people that mm -hmm. do research about on ETFs all over the world. So we have a Hong Kong um, person, um, somebody in Europe, and then three of us in the US, and then, uh, and then a, an associate who helps out with some of the dashboards and whatnot that we maintain. Um, and yeah, we're, our job is to basically cover everything ETF for the Bloomberg terminal clients as well as just be thought leaders in the industry. Um, and so that's sort of what we do all day. And we look at interesting things going on in the ETF world, try to, our, our main thing is to help you avoid nasty surprises, you know, mm. make sure you are getting to the right part of the uh, the right aisle and then the right part of the shelf to pick an ETF. And another thing our, that we do cover is the rise of passive. Uh, a lot of our terminal clients are in the industry and they're all kind of worried about how passive and low cost is changing everything. So we find we get a lot of readership from writing about that big shift inside the industry. And that's sort of what I spend most of my time doing. Dope. So I guess let's, let's, let's get some of the, in the words of the matrix of the Oracle, let's get some of the obvious stuff out of the way. One, what is the most common misconception about ETFs? Uh, good question. Um, probably that that all of them are are, are quote funds. You know, um, a, a, a mutual fund holds a bunch of stocks, and there are a lot of ETFs that are like that. But there are a lot of ETFs that are actually not technically funds, regulatory wise. Yeah. For example, GLD. Uh, so we call those ETPs, exchange traded products. And so GLD holds gold in a vault. I mean, that is not like a mutual fund. Then you have like USO, which holds oil futures. Um, then they got Bitcoin futures ETF that came out. Um, and then you've got ones that do leveraged, which is like three X and two X. And those hold total return swaps, which are sort of like what you get. You, uh, you have to have access to big banks to get those special contracts. It's sort of like in the movie, the big short, when he yep. wanted to get a subprime, uh, swap contract to bet against the housing market. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, so those you, those use swap. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception. That said, no matter what they hold, they tend to all work the same. And there's so much going on underneath the ETF that, that has to work right, and it does. But at the, 
the customer experience is usually very, very easy. And that's why they're so popular. And so I could get why people don't really care or know the difference, but I think it's probably one of the biggest misconceptions. Um, maybe another one is that they're all passive. There's so many that do things that are different than like a typical Vanguard index fund. They, I used to, I call the ETF industry the Silicon Valley of the investment world because mm. all the new ideas and stuff that, you know, they're just, they're using this structure to try it out. Some of it throwing spaghetti at the wall. Some of it's like stuff that worked over here. They're trying it now in the ETF wrapper. So um, I think that's another maybe misconception is that it's all just passive and, in, in, you know, uh, index funds. It's, there's a lot that has been put into this wrapper. The second question is, are ETFs just as risky as stocks? No, they're largely less risky. So if you take, for example, uh, XLK, um, that might be the best. Thing. Let me go with FDN. I know you like the internet ETF. If you took all those okay. stocks and you took the average standard deviation or you know volatility of, of the stocks, the ETF would probably be half that. Because you are when you have a diversified basket of many names, you you dampen the volatility uh, versus trying to pick a stock. And this is an important point because I think ETFs have made it fun for traders in particular to trade from the top down. They read an article about China or Russia or semiconductors, and they may not have time to learn every single semiconductor company and figure out which one to pick. And then who knows, you might've missed something and that, co that company just has a bad time. And you had, the, you had the industry right, but you had the stock wrong. Right. So a lot of times they'll just buy the semiconductor ETF or the internet ETF as a way to just cover everything. And I think what they get also out of that is a little less volatility. What you do give up for that though, is you give up the home run, the grand slam home run. Because if you do pick that right semiconductor stock, you're going to make a lot more money than picking the, the semiconductor ETF. So you, ETFs, in my opinion, are sort of like giving up the Grand Slam home run for like a double or triple. Okay. So but you don't strike out. Okay. There, there, <laughs> there's that part. Right? So it, it's sort of like a, you're negotiating that with yourself. And again, it's a lot of it's just convenience. People just don't want to take all that time to analyze all the stocks in the sector, or especially when you get to other, like other countries and regions. Um, it's hard to know everything. So even the smartest institutions will sometimes use ETS for stuff. They just don't have the resources to cover. Gotcha. So that, go ahead, go ahead, Jolene. Yeah, so you brought up institutions and I know you have um, that book that you just, uh, that is available currently. This one right here? It's yeah, available on Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> yes, on Amazon yes. right now. Um, <laughs> Um, talk to us about how you had mentioned that institutions might use ETFs when they don't have, you know, time to like know everything. But what are some other ways that um, institutions um, go about assessing that they should get into an ETF? So a classic way an institution uses an ETF is, um, say you're a bond manager and you have all these high yield bonds, and and you, they're not that liquid. You really like these picks. And people come in and out of your fund, though, and you want to be able to facilitate that cash flow of cashing people in and out, but you don't want to disturb your picks. You might buy HYG and put 5% of your allocation there. It's a liquid moat around the portfolio. They call that a liquidity sleeve. And that mm -hmm. way you can buy your, and that way you maintain exposure to the high yield market so mm -hmm. you're not have cash drag. But at the same time, you're not disturbing your picks and you can have people come in and out. So that, that's an interesting way. Another one would be like, Say you are a pension plan and you have like say a lot of them have a lot of active managers that they buy and like let's say they just unhappy with their european manager they fire that manager and they don't know who they're going to pick yet so they put their money in say uh vgk the vanguard europe fund or something like that just as a placeholder to keep beta or to keep exposure to european stocks until they find a manager and then we call that manager transition another one would be similar to liquidity sleeve, which is called cash equitization, which is a fancy term, but all that means is if you're a pension and you get a new donation or something or an endowment, you get a big donation, you don't want to sit on cash. So you just buy SPY or maybe maybe the, a global ETF or something yep. to keep yourself exposed to the market until you figure out how to allocate that money. So they really tend to, the, the big players tend to use ETFs more for the, their liquidity 
and, mm. as operational and adjustment mechanisms. And there is something called portfolio completion, which is what we mentioned earlier, where the institution is an expert on this, this and that, but they just don't know anything about, say, the emerging market. So they just buy IEMG yeah. or GLD is a great example. GLD mm. is a highly used ETF by institutions because they don't want to store gold. They want no part of insuring it. They'll just buy GLD. So even like like one, some of the biggest hedge funds, uh, Bridgewater, Paulson, they own a good amount of ETFs. Uh, it tends not to be their whole portfolio. It tends to be maybe like a sliver, but a mm. lot of them have learned to use ETFs for that reason. Um, and hedge funds also, in a way, uh, a lot of hedge funds, what they like to do is, a lot, there's a misconception on hedge funds that they're just trying to crush the S&P all the time. A, a couple are, but mostly they're trying to isolate something. And so what they try to do is they, they'll go after this, this uh, I don't know, a premium in the market or a stock, and they want to hedge out the entire rest of the market. That way, they are just isolating their pick. So they'll use sector ETFs, they'll short them. So they mm. might go long Microsoft and short XLK because they really like Microsoft, but they don't want the market messing with them. And so that's another way that, a, that a, sort of a big fish would use an ETF creatively. Um, is there the follow-up question, Mark? Is there um, what? So um, you just shared, you know, what um, how institutions use ETFs. Is there anything that transfers or that could be applicable for like how retail traders could strategically use ETFs? Yeah, I think for retail traders, it comes down to um, trading like an economist instead of a stock picker. I mean, again, I go back to that convenience. If, if can you, you say really that, have can you feeling, say that again, Eric? Can you just? <laughs> it's it's about sort of looking at the world as an economist as opposed to a fundamental analyst, because. There's people, like I work in Bloomberg Intelligence, there is somebody who spends their whole day in analyzing Amazon. So like, obviously that person would know everything about Amazon, but even that, that's a whole job to do that. So the idea that you could know everything about all the stocks, even just in the US, let alone bonds and international and commodities is just crazy. So ETFs are just so easy to um, put together a portfolio and do it from the top down and get all your pieces in the right weightings and be able to shift them very easily. So a lot of retail investors use ETS for two main ways. One is to trade around these news flow, these events, like you, you might find somebody going, I don't know, um, maybe somebody for, for whatever reason likes Russia because it's so beaten up. They, maybe they want to buy the Russia ETF um, in a trade or, or call options on the Russia ETF. That's one way. And then there's a whole blob of money that comes in. It's very boring. It buys Vanguard ETFs and it never trades them. And that's sort of like the buy and hold crowd. So ETFs are sort of split between the buy and hold retail investor, who's a little more like, I want low costs. Uh, I'm not really in, in it for the entertainment. And then there's certainly a whole other group that likes to trade with them. And that group sometimes can get pretty crazy. I think there's people who like, like you talk about trading sector ETFs. I would call that, that's probably normal, mild. But now with the Reddit and the Wall Street bets and that whole meme stock crowd, they like the leverage ETFs. They like to trade TQQQ. They want like adrenaline rush. And so the ETFs will, will, will provide that as well. And so I think those are the main ways that, that people would use them. And when they use the, the ones for the long term, they tend to look for the low fee. Mm -hmm. And when they use the ones for the trading, they, they tend to look for uh, like, like who has the most volume and which exposure is going to get them to where they need to go. Um, so it, I wrote a book on this, and I, I said that I, there's like you know, 12 advantages to ETFs and like 12 use cases, but each person probably only uses or cares about three of those 12. But depending on who you are, you might care about a different three than the next person. And so ETFs, in my opinion, are a bit like a Swiss Army knife. You may not use half of the blades in there. You might just use the scissors and the knife or something, um, or the corkscrew. And to me, that's that's sort of what ETFs are. They're, they're different to everybody, uh, but that's what makes them so popular is they serve so many different audiences. So that was great. You, you mentioned something that was very interesting um, where you were talking about index and then you talked about sector, but then there's also like some other things that we're starting to see. Like we've, we've heard of like terms of like equally weighted ETFs. And I think that there is, a, I think it's Jeremy Siegel who, who speaks very highly about equally weighted ETFs. And then of course we have the rise of thematic uh, ETFs. 
let's just do a quick breakdown of those and like from index uh, sector and then of course thematic and if you want to we can also talk about equally weighted just for folks just to be caught up to speed sure let's save equal weighted for last I think that's an intro I get that I go I do um, the money show which is all over the country and it's caters to a retail audience and I get equal weighted questions a lot it's interesting I think equal weighted just makes people curious. Uh, it almost seems like a better way to do it than market cap, but I'll, I'll, in a minute I'll go over that. Um, there's broad-based, that would be like SPY. That's gonna basically give you the whole market and it's gonna weight the stocks by how big they are. Yep. It's just proven to be a really good way to do it. It's, what people miss about that concept though is that that's really the fruit of active labor because active managers are out there buying and selling stocks, right? If they like Tesla, they're gonna bid it up and Tesla's gonna have bigger market cap. So the index is gonna be like, okay, we're gonna have bigger market cap. And all of a sudden they don't like Tesla, they're gonna bid it down. And that Tesla's gonna go down in the index. We've seen stocks go up and down, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So what you're really doing is, is taking the average of all the active managers' opinions minus their fees, right? And that, that's essentially what a market cap weighted index is. And that's a pretty, pretty strong, powerful value proposition there. Yep. And those indexes are the large cap and the mid cap and small cap and international. Those would be called like the sort of, I call them the vanilla ones. And they tend to be really cheap these days. You can get all that in a diversified portfolio for probably five basis points or 0.05%. Then you move to the more specialty ones. And sectors I would put probably next level. Yep. Those are basically taking like a sliver of the S&P 500, just like tech, energy, uh, utilities. You, you already said there's 11 of them. I could probably name them if I had enough time, but <laughs> real estate's the new one, new kill on the block in communications. Yeah. Um, and then th those are sort of a lot of institutions trade around those. Um, and then sectors, though, I think there was a limitation because technology has made a lot of these companies like what is Amazon? Is it really discretionary? What is Google? Uh, so <laughs> is it really a communication the, company? Is yeah. Look, yeah. Some of these is Tesla, Visa really um, a tech company? <laughs> that, that's a big that's a great example. And Tesla gets the example. Is it really just a car company? Um, so thematic ETFs came along and said, actually, your, your sectors are just too stale and in the past and rigid. Uh, we're going we're gonna to cross through the sectors and actually identify the, or group the stocks by thematic purposes. And that was, a, that was an evolution on the sector, in my opinion. But I also think that thematic ETFs really stole some thunder from quantitative investing, which is like quantitative is like saying, let's divide all the stocks by value. Yep. Like, well, the chief ones are here. And then we'll put the, the growth ones, the, the ones that don't make a lot of money, but have a big future outlook. We'll put those here. Then there's quality and momentum. And these academics divided the whole market up. And thematic ETFs, in my opinion, largely capture the growth factor and momentum. So theme ETFs, I think, stole thunder from sectors and quantitative uh, research. And also, I think they tapped into the idea that people want to have fun uh, with their portfolios. They want to be inspired. They like narratives. Narratives are huge these days. Um, in, some, in some cases, narratives are obviously Trump fundamentals, whether that's good or bad. I, I, that's, I'll, you know, it is what it probably is. Bad, but <laughs> <laughs> probably it's bad. But anyway, uh, that's sort of, I think, where themes are. And then obviously there's other uh, areas like commodities, which hold, you know, wheat and soybean futures, gold. And then you've got, um, uh, like I said, when I go to the point, I will call it smart beta. That's looking at like value or growth. Um, and then some of those are even based on like a portfolio manager may convert their secret sauce into an index. And, and like they call, we used to call those fundamentally weighted. So those are actually intriguing because if you take all of what some, uh, a real portfolio manager would do to analyze stocks, dividends, sales, sales growth, earnings growth, margins, and you ranked all the stocks by those and you gave them each like a, a, a weighting. And then that ranked would be the ETF. And then they just do the rank every quarter and the ETF just does that. So it's almost like an AI version of an active manager. Yeah. And that, that is loosely called smart beta. And that's been pretty popular too, because you sort of get the, all the good parts of the brain without the emotion, because the ETF is like a robot. It just rebalances when it does. And that's proven to be pretty strong because emotion can really mess up your, your returns. Yeah. Uh, if you act on the news flow or your or like what you're feeling or if you're scared, it's better to just stick to the plan. Um, so I guess those would be some of the general categories. Uh, I'll pause, but if, I can go to equal weighting if you want now or if you have any questions. Let's do it. Okay. 
market cap weighting is like uh, what was my re reference? Is sort of like the House of Representatives, right? <laughs> okay. so, you know, like California has like the most. So like, yes. That's Microsoft gets the biggest weight. Equal weighting is like the Senate, where every state gets two two yeah. representatives, and so equal weighting essentially is going to be more volatile because you're going to give more weighting to the smaller companies, mid cap, small caps. So I like equal weighting, and I like it for a couple reasons. In the S and P 500, it's interesting because equal weighting as a stock starts to go up and up when it goes to the next rebound it has to sell that winner yeah. and buy a loser yeah and that's called discipline rebalancing and it does it over and over and it can actually work for you hmm. on the flip some people refer to equal weighting as just mid cap in disguise because if you do a mid cap etf and, and the s&p equal weighted returns are pretty close yeah um i'll just point that out there where i think equal weighting is probably the strongest is in thematics and and maybe like industries like biotech there's a great example of equal weighted biotech is xbi the market cap weighted one is ibb xbi crushes ibb and we looked at why and one of the main reasons is that when you equal weight you get m a pop because usually the a company that another company buys is going to be not the top four in fact those will be the acquirers down there is where the target will be and those companies go up like 80 percent in a day and so XBI had a lot of, there's a lot of M&A in the biotech world, had a lot of exposure to the small ones. So I would say in areas like the cannabis sector or um, cybersecurity or electric vehicles, having exposure to some of those like really young, new, smaller companies and you have an equal weight to them, you get M&A pop out of it. Because unless you have inside information, you can never know that. Yeah. And you can never benefit from M&A. So to me, that's a backdoor way to, or back to a reason you'd want to have uh, equal weighting in your thematic ETF. Plus, it's, it get, even though you have extra volatility, my guess is it's not your whole portfolio. You're doing this for some spice. So I think you want spice. And so I like equal weighting uh, especially. I think it can be debatable on the S&P 500 and yeah. big indexes, but I think it works well in the thematic area. Do you believe that, uh, like, looking at the future and, you know, like the future of, like, ETFs, do you believe that the future of ETFs is really within thematic, where we where we focus on specific themes like whether it's innovation, ESG, those types of things, or is it still going to be the remain tried and true index related ETFs? Both. Um, okay. So we have a big theme that that we have this year. We're riffing off of you're in Seattle, right? Mm -hmm. We riff off of Nirvana. <laughs> Which I, maybe I'm dating myself here. No, you're good. You know that the, the, <laughs> the, the, the everybody still walks from, around with the shirts, and you can still hear the music. You're good. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's a line in, in "Smells Like Teen Spirit" says, "Here we are now, entertain us." That is how we feel investors are these days. A lot of people have moved to a cheap index fund like Vanguard for their core, whether it's through their 401k or just in their own IRA or something like that, and they love it. They got all the coverage for like almost free. That said, it's boring as hell. And so what they want to do is sort of entertain and distract themselves and have a little fun with a little, a little side money. That is where themes and ESG and uh, crypto and ARC and innovation, all those things are have a, a really bright future. Yeah. So in a weird way, the rise of Vanguard and passive and boring is resulting in a byproduct of wild, crazy, and really active volatile stuff. So I think we're going to see even more, you know, some really crazy stuff thrown at the wall in the next decade, because everybody's going to be trying to sell hot sauce to the boring Vanguard holders, which is sweeping the nation in portfolios. So I think that's a lot of what you're going to see. And most of the people who want to launch these ETFs, they're not going to go and compete with Vanguard and BlackRock, because what are you going to do? Like launch an S&P 500 ETF for one basis point? Some people have tried, but nobody buys it. Yeah, nobody buys so it. So even if you got money, you wouldn't make any money. So all of the innovation and the uh, new products are probably going to be over here. Um, and you'll see stuff that's designed where they might have a strategy and they might have options overlaid. So you might have people packaging trades inside ETF as well. Uh, for example, there's a filing for a Bitcoin plus gold. Yep. There'll be a filing for an Ether plus Bitcoin. Yep. And they're going to throw all this stuff and just keep adding and experimenting. But it's all probably, most of it's going to be in that, what we call the shiny object lane. 
So what do you think go ahead. the impact, hold on, let me ask this. What do you think the impact is of um, retail traders on this need for the spice and the thrill? I think retail traders, you know, we, we think they, each, a lot of ETFs are just not thrilling enough for them. Um, like XLK, I think if, if you look at like Reddit, uh, Robinhood, that, that's just not enough juice. They do like TQQQ, which is the triple leverage queues. We've seen a lot of volume grow in that over the past two years since March 2020 when retail traders really came on the scene and also trading got free. Once trading got free on all these platforms, you can see a rise in a lot of these really volatile products. So I think they like that. I think they like options. I do think they probably like options on an XLK. They might do that. But what they really like is options on a Tesla. So that's a single stock. We talked about how it's more volatile. Then you have options. But to me, ETFs are actually uh, just a lot of them too boring. And I, I saw this one TikTok video, this guy who was like, Hey, you, you want to get in the market, but you don't want to, you don't want to make 9% a year. It's just too boring and slow, which is what the S&P gives you, which I think is a pretty good deal. But anyway, he was not into it. And he goes, here's this thing called 3X QQQ. Oh. It'll get you there faster. And this is probably horrible advice, but Where are they going? the mindset, I think, <laughs> I know. the word faster was intriguing. I never, I never thought of that word when it came to investing. I did think of like maybe... Uh, more, but the word faster was interesting, and I think it spoke to a lot of the younger YOLO retail day trading crowd, and that mm -hmm. is a lot of what they're doing. And I, honestly, as a '90s person, as you, as I obviously told you through my Nirvana reference, I remember in the '90s everybody was like trading Microsoft, Oracle, Cisco, and like I remember one time my roommate, he was like, "Oh, dude, Microsoft's up seven percent today. I'm buying drinks tonight." And and then people got into Pets.com, and then it just. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of those people are just boring investors. Yeah. So I think this is a natural cycle of things for younger people to learn, experiment, get the thrill of it. And then, and then they're handed a bear market. And I think a lot of them, um, and they might have more serious obligations, like a house or something, um, and or saving for college or something. And so yeah. they might calm down over time. And then the next generation will come in and we'll, we'll all go on. They'll they, bring in the next crazy? wave of volatility. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. I guess the question is, is like, you know, we saw last year in 2021, the inflows of ETFs was, you know, pretty much a trillion dollars uh, in, in inflows. You know, one, let's 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 discuss like inflows really quickly. And then we're going to we're going to end it off in discussing some tickers, um, some ETFs. But let's talk about it, because we saw a record amount of inflows that came through in a single year. So what are your thoughts on that from 2021? And then what do you kind of project on those inflows for 2022 this year? Um, I was surprised by the inflows last year. I, I figured we'd do 500 billion a year. We did 900 last year. So where did that come from? Uh, I would use the metaphor of, of uh, I don't know, a, a team. Like let's we'll use basketball team. There's bench players and there's starters and there's your star. The star is like growth stocks, like the Qs by they always crush it. They have for the last 10 years. I mean, I throw FDN, XLK in there. But if you notice in 2021, value started coming back in, in the early part of the year. Commodities started coming back. Small caps, because, oh, they're reopening trade. Uh, and small caps are closer to the ground. They, they feed off the regular economy more than sort of the work from home stocks. Yep. And what, you, what actually happened was that both of them started doing well. So you actually had almost everything doing well. And that's rare. And so you had flows going to where they normally go the star players, but the bench players started scoring and value took in like 70 billion and that's double its old record. Commodities took in like 40 billion. That's double the old record. Uh, even then people started worrying about inflation. So tips took in like 17 billion. That's double the old record. So a lot of the sleepy places woke up. I don't think we'll see that again. Um, I think that's just one of those special years. Uh, the S&P was up 26% last year. That's insane. You're only mm -hmm. supposed to get eight or 9%. In fact, I looked this year, if you start at the end of 2020, and 2021 is at 26%, you, and you just extend 2021 as if it were 14 months, yep. you're still up 16%. Yep. That's more than you're supposed to get, and that's with all of the Fed, the Russia. Mm -hmm. That's how strong the S&P has been and is still. Uh, and so I think uh, that year was special. It was utopian. Everything was working. Um, even the bond funds broke the record. Yep. So you had 60 and the 40 both going up. This does give me some fear for the future where 
Well, if everything goes up together for 10 years, largely, uh, is it all going to go down together? Um, so I think that's the that sort of worry side of, of, of a year like last year. That said, there's always a baseline of flows, about a billion or two a day that come into the ETF because it's the, it's the new wrapper. It's sort of like going to digital music out of compact discs. Yep. So that baseline is there. That's two billion, but last year they took in four billion a day. So the two billion is always going to come in. The other two is, or the, the rest is based on sentiment and where the market is at that time. Right. So I think we'll probably do three billion a day this year. Two billion plus maybe there'll be a couple areas working, but not four or five. AKA like energy, which is a rock star this year. But but a lot of things that uh, energy's rise has come at the expense of some other sectors, which are not doing as well. Correct. Especially the growth area. So, in looking forward, um, and really, actually, like in looking forward, because it's actually going to play into some of the things in which that we're going to talk about. Let's talk about some of the ETFs that you know that are on, you know, say, for example, a list or maybe even a perspective list, <laughs> shall we? So sure. no, it, I like the ticker. So you just throw them out there. Okay, so I'm going to give you a ticker. And I just definitely want you to give us some some quick give us some of your quick thoughts. All right. So since I'm going to I'm going to work our way back from like the Matic and work our way back to some of the other things. So of course, you know, I got to start off with SMH. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're going to start off with ARC. <laughs> Man, hard to keep ARC to a couple of minutes, but I'll try. Um, look, what can you say? Um, okay, Kathy Wood is the manager of ARC. That, that's, that's what you buy. You're buying Kathy Wood's brain and her conviction. And what makes ARC so powerful and so popular is that they really saw, uh, you know, ahead of this sort of growth tech boom that we saw and they cross sectors i remember meeting kathy wood at a conference in 2014 when she first launched and she had she was like two months away from launching and her pr person's like oh this is kathy wood i'm like oh, hi nice to meet you she goes yeah i have an active fund charges 75 basis points and it picks some of these like stocks and i was like oh my god active 75 like there's no way this thing will succeed <laughs> <laughs> but the one part in my mind i was like the one thing it does do is it crosses sectors she doesn't she's not bound by an index maybe Maybe that makes sense. Anyway, that's what really worked. She captured a, the innovation theme in a way that even the Fang names didn't capture. And that thing went up like a ton. And then when 2020 hit, the, um, the work from home stocks that she was all in, like Roku and Zoom and all that, they really shot up. And then she got all these flows, which helped her performance as well. And it was like an upward spiral. Now it's a little bit of a downward spiral. She's down 50% since that high a year ago. Yep. But a lot of her investors have stuck to it, largely because I think they have that core covered with the, all the regular stocks. They want her for some wild and crazy. So what some people see as a, a bug, which is, oh, why is she sticking to these names? Um, I think that's a feature. People don't want her to go into cash or value stocks. They already own those. Or yep. They have that covered. They want mm -hmm. Kathy for the what's happening in 10 years stocks. And so she is her conviction gets trashed on Twitter a lot, but it's actually very beneficial to her investors and her flows and, her, and the retention of those assets. So we're bullish arc long-term. We feel like they make a variety of hot sauces. And as I said earlier, hot sauce is, is a, has a home in the future. Okay. We're gonna move on to, we're gonna go from one side of the spectrum all the way to the other side of the spectrum. Let's talk about SPY. <laughs> um, this is the first ETF ever launched in 1993 mm -hmm. um, and what can I say? It's it's uh, the biggest ETF in the world at 400 billion. It's the fourth biggest mutual fund overall, mm -hmm. um, and it trades more than any stock. So if you look at all the volume of all the stocks and ETFs every day, SPY will typically trade more than the top two or three stocks combined. It's a it's almost like its own ecosystem. It's got, in fact, if you take all the options and the volume in those options, I believe SPY options are 40% of all stocks and ETFs combined. Yeah, that was actually reported on CBOE. Oh yeah, um, I, I might have that number wrong. I haven't looked at it in a while, but either way, it's a mind blowing number. And so it's basically, the, we call it the liquidity king. That said, a lot of advisors and people going long-term have chosen to go with VU or IVV, which are the same thing, but they actually are cheaper. So SPY is nine basis points, those are three. Um, once you get down under 10, it's not a big of a deal, but 
you know, might as well go with the cheaper one. And Boo and IVV are now getting pretty liquid themselves. So yeah. we think over time they're going to actually get close in assets. But I don't know how SPY's liquidity will take a long time to steal away. Okay, so then let's come into the spectrum in between. Let's talk about uh, FPX. And so for those that don't understand, it's like, that's kind of like your IPO ETF. Yeah, so FPX is one of, uh, we have a thing we do called Hidden Gems uh, for the Money Show, and this is one of my picks. When I talk, when you talk about SPY, right, it's the S&P 500. If we talk about, I don't know, um, the MSCI International, there's a lot of these general mainstream indexes out there that ETS track. They're very picky with how they let a stock into the index. You gotta like, you gotta like do all this stuff. You gotta be around for like three or four years. And so, what FPX does, in my opinion, is it captures the, these stocks from the birth, which is when they enter the market as an IPO, through their toddler years. That you, because you miss all that in the regular ETFs, because the indexes are pretty conservative. So what they do is they they capture. It's a catch and release of the toddler years of the stock. And that has been a powerful formula. A lot of those are dogs. The word IPO gets a bad reputation because a lot of them are dogs, but you only need a Facebook or a Tesla to actually overwhelm 10 dogs. So FPX has actually outperformed the market by a ton since it came out in 2005. It's a, I can't believe it doesn't have more assets given that its performance is amazing. Mm -hmm. And the, it serves up something you, you don't normally get, and it's a pain to track. Who wants to track all the new IPOs? And who knows which ones are going to go up or down? Uh, I remember Facebook, when it IPO'd, it wasn't a sure thing that was going to work. People were, were like, how is this even like a real business? Um, and that obviously turned out to be fine. Tesla, remember Jim Cramer said, this is the worst stock to IPO. And that's when Elon Musk said, oh, um, yeah, his, his Bear Stearns pick was really good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, FPX has $1.4 billion. Um, so it's an interesting... Uh, concept and I think FPX does one to uh, zero to four years. IPO is a competitive product that does the stock from zero to two years. So it depends on how much you want in there. And I believe both of them have started to work in SPACs a little bit, yep. but not a lot. Okay, so then let's get into it. Uh, like looking at uh, Goldman, let's go into one of the Goldman packages, uh, GSLC, and that's the, this is the Goldman Sachs Active Beta Large Cap Equity ETF. Yeah, I wrote an article on this, calling this the equivalent of the T2000 Terminator, you know, that liquid nitrogen Terminator from the Terminator 2. It is, it is really well designed, uh, but I, I don't know that the, it's that valuable. Look at the top holdings, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Meta. It's literally the S&P. Yep. It, it has only 25% difference from the S&P, um, but it's really powerful for advisors who want the Goldman name, they want the story of smart beta, they want to do something different than just beta, and it only charges nine basis points, so they love cheap. So it really appeals to the modern day advisor who wants cheap, um, and they don't like tracking error. But if you look, this thing hasn't really outperformed much, and I don't know, it pretty much tracks the S&P. Yeah. Um, that said, Goldman would tell you that, you know, this is like our institutional level research in here, but I would just say to you, and this is a rule of thumb for all ETFs, look at the holdings. So you might see this cool Goldman name, active beta, all this stuff, but just look at the holdings. You might go, yeah, uh, actually, I kind of own this already, or I can get this for three basis points in VOO. Um, Goldman will say, well, we are making small bets on the edges, but I just, I don't know. Um, I just, it's very much like the S&P. That's what I'll, I'll just end there. But at least it's, it's cheap. It's very cheap. So yeah. uh, one of the digs on active mutual funds is, is they serve something like this up for 100 basis points. That's called closet indexing. At least Goldman is selling you this at a very beta-ish price tag. Okay, and then let's talk about somebody's favorite <laughs> ETF over here. None other than shaking my head, SMH. <laughs> <laughs> my colleague loves the ticker because every time it has like a bad performance, and she's like SMH down twenty percent, she's like shaking my head. It just for whatever reason, it just like does it for her. But anyway, um, SMH is, uh, <clears throat> we talk about market cap weighted, yes. definitely market cap weighted. It's got the big stocks really rule this thing. Taiwan Semiconductors, NVIDIA, they probably, eh, looks like the top five stocks make up 25% of the portfolio. And it's only got 23 stocks. It's pretty concentrated. <clears throat> it's a fine ETF. I mean, semiconductors, 
the whole our whole world runs on semis. So I, I can't imagine this as a bad as like a bad future, even if it's done well. It just seems like it can't go wrong, even if you have a bad year or two. Thirty nine basis points, eight point two billion, very liquid. I have no problem with it. For those looking for it, there is an equal weighted version called XSD though, which is from S and P. But I look, their performances are pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like in biotech you have the equal weighted doing much better. These are pretty close. Um, and XSD has 1.2 billion. So, and there's one called SOX. Yep. Uh, so I, I would maybe check out those three and look at the holdings and the weightings and, and think, you know, where do I really want to put my money? But they're all good. I mean, I think it's a great category. Okay, I'm gonna throw you a curveball. I'm gonna throw you a curveball. You ready, Eric? Sure. Shout out to, <clears throat> shout out to the nerds. Ticker N-E-R-D. <laughs> <laughs> so nerd, is a video game ETF and esports, and you know you look at the whole holding here, uh, and it's got Activision, Modern Times, uh, Tencent, um, and it's been a pretty good performer. Um, the nerd people also are the people who came out with Meta, the Metaverse ETF. So I think those are all part of the same like video game. Yep. I will say I was looking at video games. We have an analyst who covers them. If you look at the revenue numbers of video games, it's ridiculous. Like it's like more than like all sports and all movies and all like music combined. So, you know, you have to take this seriously because when the video game ETFs came out, they weren't selling, but they were up a ton. And I was like, why aren't these things selling? And I realized I started to talk to advisors. They were like, I cannot put video game on a line item in my client statement. I'll get fired. And I was like, so they started changing the name. Yep. So now instead of video game, they're now called like. This one's called eSports and Digital Entertainment. And all they had to do was sort of tweak the name because video game came with this like, boomers were thinking it was like Pac-Man. And then it realized the revenue mm -hmm. on these things is real. And so now they're starting to blossom. And so Nerd, Gamer, G-A-M-R, and ESPO, and Hero are the four. And I, again, I would just look at all of them. They all have their pros and cons. Gamer had a fun because Gamer owned GameStop and the other three didn't. So for a while, Gamer was crushing everybody until GameStop came back down. But anyway, that's why you need to know what's in your portfolio. <laughs> okay, so what's uh? I'm gonna actually let you give us uh, a, you know, some of your favorites that that you're paying attention to in 2022. Uh, one of the ones that I really uh, always watch is URNM. It's the North Shore Global Uranium Miners. Okay. Because. You know, everybody wants climate change, right? Or they want to fight climate change, but nobody wants to stop their lifestyle. They want to fly, they want to heat their house. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to give anything up. So solar and wind are not gonna be able to get us to net zero. And it's starting to dawn on people, serious thinkers like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, that we're gonna to have to use nuclear in order to have a clean energy future and be able to keep our lifestyles and let the emerging markets also, uh, you know, come up the way we did using a lot of energy. And so uranium, this thing's had a really nice run. It's volatile. But to me, this is an interesting play. I call it green investing for realists. Um, and it's one that I watched from the get-go because it, the story is good. It also adds, it complements the boring portfolio pretty well. So I think it has a bright future. So that's one I, would, I, would, I like. And then another one that's in my list that you mentioned earlier in our prep call was GOVT. This is really boring. But the reason I like GOVT, it's, it's all treasuries. Um, treasuries are really a safe haven, like you know, Bitcoin, gold, like treasuries are really the true safe haven in my opinion. And uh, when you look at the holdings of this, it's all the curve. Because you know how people try to figure out where on the curve, yep. inverted, it's, you know, is the Fed raising here, what's going on? This one just holds all treasuries down the whole spectrum. So you don't have to worry about that whole curve thing. And I like that. And it's very cheap and it's a big seller. So GOVT is also one we like to watch, although it's very boring. You, you know, it's funny that what we say is like, when we think about like boring, most wealth is built upon being boring. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, it, patience too. I mean, yes. and compounding interest, Co compounding is ridiculous. When you look at some of the charts and numbers around compounding, it, it, it will blow your mind. So, but that takes discipline and patience. And like I said, that's why some of these like crazy theme ETFs that people like used to laugh at they, they, they may be serving a real true behavioral purpose by letting you scratch your itch so you don't mess with this. So this mm -hmm. can compound while you are able to not lose your mind waiting. 
I have a question for you with that. So for someone, you know, most of the cousins are building um, generational wealth. Um, and um, at the Come Up series, our mission is to close the racial wealth gap within a generation. And that's why we do what we do. Um, so the question is, okay, you want a little spice, but you also want stability. And like, realistically, let's say you're looking at, you know, a 10 year, um, 10 year investment, right? Um, or investing for a total of 10 years, um, you know, percentage wise, how much hot sauce are we talking versus, you know, just the, the boring, you know, bland uh, ETFs, if we're just looking at ETFs only? Yeah, so if, and we, we look at that wealth gap because only 50% of people own equities or any have any tie to the market. And as the Fed has really helped the market grow, it's it's created a gap because really those 50%, their wealth has gone really high, especially at the top, top. I think something like the top 1% owns half the stock market. Yes. So mm -hmm. the stock market is a wealth divider or it, 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 personally, I think they should put people in like a Vanguard index fund when you're born and like, you know, have, have that just grow for you in a way that is like almost like a 401k helper. Uh, but you, maybe you can't touch it for a long time or something like that. Um, there's a, there's a, a guy that's a uh, feature in my book that he says that you should have to pass a test when you're 21 about financial literacy and then you get the money. And uh, because a lot of the stock picking programs they do in high school and stuff like that, I don't know if that's usually helpful. I think honestly, patience, low costs, that wins long term. It's been proven by every study. So I would recommend just buying like BTI, which is the total market. And then, you know, if you know yourself and you really are into invest, like some people like BTI because it, it, they don't have to think about it at all. It frees up their time. They could go do other hobbies. There are some people who like the feeling of gambling. In that case, I would say do 10% hot sauce to satisfy that feeling. But if you don't have that need, then just do this here and then you never have to worry about it. I mean, maybe you put like a BNB, which is the total bond, and you do those two, and that gives you like a really, it's a 60-40 portfolio. Most advisors, that's all they do. For their 1%, mm -hmm. that's basically largely what they do. And uh, with Vanguard or, or iShares, you can get those two together for a total all-in fee of like 0.03%. Yep. And Gross all that compounding, account. you get. Because they've done a study, if you if you have a, a mutual fund that charges 1% and trades a lot, say there's 2% in fees, over the course of, um, 50 years, you're at $10,000, a 5% a year would grow to $100,000 in the mutual fund. But in the frictionless, low cost index fund, it grows to $300,000. That's a $200,000 gap. In other words, you put up all the money, the industry takes 40% of it, or you know, you only get 40% of it, they get 60, 60% because of the way that compounds. So the key is to keep your fees very low. That way you keep all the money um, but I don't know if there's a quick way to get there. And sometimes I, when I see these NFT and crypto videos, um, I'm sure it, it's so seducing to some people, but I, I would really stick to that boring core of low cost vanilla funds and just make sure you check that box first. So it's that's what I would tell my mom or, or <laughs> I would tell my son that, I mean, I, anybody close to me, that's what I would advise. So it's Eric, I wanted to ask you a question because we talked about it right before we went live, you know, there's a story behind Vanguard. There's a story behind Vanguard and how how that whole fund started. Care to care to share that? Thank you for setting me up for my. <laughs> I have a I have a I started by plugging a book. I have another one coming out in two months called The Bogle Effect about the guy who go. started Vanguard named Jack Bogle, <laughs> because Vanguard is sort of run like a nonprofit or a co-op. Um, I won't go into exactly how this happened, but the guy set this company up where. He made the investors the owners of the company, which is really unusual because most people who go to Wall Street to, to do all this stuff, they don't want to like forego all the future profits. They want to keep them. <laughs> they don't want to give them to the customers. No business does that. Right. But he did that. And that's why Vanguard over the years, when they started their funds, they were like 40 basis points in 1975. But every time they got assets and a little extra money, the board, which is the investors, voted to lower the fees because it would benefit them. Normally the board is like shareholders who want profits. So over the years, the fee went from 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And it's now down to like three or four basis points for almost everything they have. 
that's passive, and the rest of the industry has now had to follow. So this structure this guy set up, to me, is the governing force of, the, of much of the financial industry. And now they're going to get into the advisory world, and they have advice business now for between 5 and 30 basis points. Normally it's 1%. Now they're starting to toy into private equity. Anywhere they go and apply this structure, they're going to wreak havoc. Yeah, because so they bring down the cost. To me, way bigger than passive, way bigger than index funds is that structure. And I actually had some time with the guy himself uh, uh, before he passed away. And I have all these interviews. So I, I took all my data, research, and opinion and combined it with uh, his audio. And he had some visions of the future and stuff. And uh, he had some takes. And he's a funny guy. He's like a kind of a cantankerous, like, grandpa guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I put that on the book and I interviewed like 50 people, got their take on things. And it's sort of like a semi-documentary about the Bogle effect or what is I consider to be one of the biggest forces in the industry. And if you add up all the money that would have been in a, a high cost mutual fund that is now in Vanguard or other low cost, it is totaled way over a trillion dollars. Yep. That's a trillion in revenue that would have been in Wall Street that this guy moved to investors. That's and amazing. it's going to keep growing exponentially. So it's it's just it's one of the it's a rare Wall Street story with a happy ending. And so I was like, I, I I really should, I really should try to capture all this for posterity. That's what's up. All right, so Eric, you you already have one book, so let's let's get the, let's get those plugs out there because they're not shameless. There's something that we're going to put on the reading material for the Come of Cousins. Mm -hmm. So what's the title of your first book again for everybody? The Institutional ETF Toolbox. Um, but don't don't let the word institutional scare you. I go into that a little bit, but really, it's I speak in my voice. It's very conversational, and I, I'm, my mom understood most of it. And I go through all the categories, all the asset classes. I go through equal weighting. And so, if you really want to get more of what I talked about today and to become a, a better ETF investor, yeah, it will it will help you. Um, I can pretty much guarantee it. So I've had that feedback. Um, so yeah, that's the one book. Another one is the Bogle effect, but that's not out for two months. Hey, but um, be but on the lookout on Amazon. But yeah, be on the, be on the lookout. lookout. I'll be, I'll be uh, clamoring about it. But I'm, I promised myself I wouldn't promote it on Twitter until like two weeks before. I don't want to just go on and on and on. People get tired. <laughs> well, just make sure that I get a copy. I'll be on the lookout. Um, I'll send you a copy. I promise. Also, I have a question. go ahead. Sure. Oh, go ahead. Oh wait, my question is the most important question. So, oh, and it's close. It's the closing question. So it is the closing question. <laughs> he, he, I don't know yeah, if he's had enough time, but, but uh, I know that we've gone a little bit over. But uh, Eric, where can they find you if the cousins want to just follow some of your great knowledge, uh, hear more of the content, and everything else? Where can they find you? So, assuming if you have a Bloomberg terminal, bi etf go. If you if you do not or don't have access to one. Um, which is like a actually paywall with that. Um, Twitter at Eric Valchunas. Um, and I have a podcast called Trillions, which you can get for free anywhere. And there's a TV show that's starting up in two weeks called ETF IQ, where me and two other people will be talking about ETFs on Bloomberg television every Monday at 1 p.m. Nice. So those are some free ways to, to find me. Nice. All right, y'all. Are we ready That's, all got, That's all I got, Jolyn. That's all I got. Here it comes. All right, so, hold on. Let me, you know, I have the most important question on here. Hold on. Hold on. I, need, hold I, need on. To, I need to switch my vision for I this to, one. I had to add the dramatic note, but, um, you know, in the comment series tradition, Eric, which cousin are you? Well, I mean, I don't know. I thought about this. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm an only child. And so every time mm -hmm. I'd go to a family gathering, I would be like really happy and outgoing. I'd be playing basketball. I'd be uh, jumping in the pool. I'd be telling jokes because I don't have siblings. So I guess I'd be the social cousin. Hey. Or the, but with a little bit of shadiness. A little bit of shadiness. The shady like, social cousin. You know, yeah, see? the shady social cousin. How's that? Man after my own heart. <laughs> Man after my own heart. You know, there's All right, only... Eric, you've been officially knighted. You've been officially knighted. Social cousin. The shady social cousin. I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for just coming on the show and dropping so much knowledge. We hope that you are not a one-time visitor. We would love to have you on the show if at any point in time that you would like, especially when you release your book, because we definitely got to talk a little bit more about it. And it'll probably be added to the Come Up Cousins reading material as well. 
But thank you so much for just stopping by and giving us your evening. We wish you well, brother. Thank you so much. To everybody else, we hope that you enjoyed tonight's show with Eric. Until next time, I am Mark Monroe. Oh, yeah. Show to Eric. <laughs> oh, uh, well, thank you very much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure, and uh, yeah, hope to talk to you again soon. All right. And I'm Jolene JC in the place to be. And this was definitely your come up. We will see y'all next week. Have a great week, people. Peace.